hello and welcome to this episode of The Cranog. This week we wanted to dedicate this episode to witchcraft and the witches of Scottish folklore. On the 8th of March this year, which was also International Women's Day, the Scottish government issued a formal apology to those persecuted as part of the witch trials, which happened in Scotland between the 16th and the 18th century and resulted in nearly 4,000 people being accused of being witches, with at least 2,500 executed. Um, a majority of these people were women, and it goes without saying that most of them were not, in fact, witches. The move comes as a result of a campaign by Witches of Scotland, who are now seeking for the victims to be pardoned and a m- memorial built in their honour. And I think witchcraft is going to be an interesting one, from a folklore perspective, because it does kind of overlap between the myth, the realms of myth and reality in a way, especially because the belief and fear of witchcraft was so entrenched in society at the time. A lot of these women's stories have lived on, and they were real women, but their stories have grown arms and legs as the fear of witchcraft took over society. Um, and it's resulted in these perfectly regular people becoming folkloric in a sense. So I think it's going to be a really interesting one. So this is the Witch and Warlock. It's okay. So it's actually called the Warlock of the West Bow, but I decided to call it the Witch and the Warlock of the West Bow because I wasn't for um, erasing Janet in this story. I think that's her name. We'll find out. Um, so this is from Edinburgh, and it is a historical thing that happened. Um, but it's also got, you know, it's one of these stories that definitely has had things, arms and legs added onto it. Um, in its telling. So here we go. Major Thomas Weir was a good and well-respected Christian and a man of Edinburgh City Guard. The people of Edinburgh looked up to him and his unparalleled devotion to the church earned him the nickname the Westbow Saint on account of the little flat that he and his spinster sister Jean, or more commonly known as Grizzle, occupied on Edinburgh's Westbow. The pair had come from Lanarkshire from a mother who was reputedly host to the second site, but this did nothing to scupper their reputation as devout followers of God. Thomas was ever the enigmatic preacher, but those who saw him preach without his trusty black staff, with which he rarely parted, reported that his words fell flat and his addresses lacked their usual power. The dark staff, with its frightening head on top and carvings of satyrs about its shaft, was wildly assumed to be nothing more than a walking aid, while others swore that they had seen the staff move by itself, even running errands for Thomas, including opening doors like some ghostly butler. One fateful Sunday morning, the church community was to bear witness to an event most peculiar, and their beloved Westbow Saint would never be the same again. At the beginning of the service, Thomas stood before the congregation, as always, leaning on his staff for support. As he lifted his head and raised his arms, the members of the congregation couldn't help but notice the peaky hue to his skin. When Thomas opened his mouth, it was not prayers that spilled out, but a terrible confession that bound the congregation in horror. Thomas claimed responsibility for some of the most evil deeds. He pled to witchcraft, necromancy, and the terrible intimate acts with beasts and his own sister. The clergy were shocked at what they had witnessed, but reluctant to accuse such a revered member of their community of witchcraft, they called the best doctors the city had to offer. The doctors examined Thomas, but much to their collective bewilderment, each verdict was clear. Never had there been a man so healthy in body and mind as Major Thomas Weir, who continued to insist on crimes he had committed. At a loss for what to do, the authorities questioned Grizzle Weir, Thomas Spinster's sister. Thomas had marred her good name in his proclamation, so surely he would sh- she would shed some light on her brother's madness. 
but Grizzle did nothing to clear the air or even deny the repulsive accusations her own brother had levelled against her, instead readily admitting all that Thomas had already confessed to and more. She admitted their sinful relations and declared her mother was a witch skilled in necromancy. She recounted stories of devilry and fairy. She claimed on one occasion a blazing carriage pulled by six charcoal horses arrived at their house on the West Bow to take them to their master, Old Nick himself. She claimed one time a fairy gave her a piece of tree root and an amulet in silver, and when Grizzle returned to her spinning wheel she found more fine yarn than any person could have spun in the time that had passed. With the pair unrepentant, the authorities had no choice but to imprison Thomas and Grizzle in the city Tolbooth and await the outcome of their trial. Witnesses were called from the congregation that had heard Thomas's first dark confession. The siblings, unsurprisingly, pled guilty, and with naught else to be done, the pair were sentenced to death. Thomas was to be strangled at the stake and burned to ash alongside his precious staff at the Gallows Lee between Edinburgh and Leith, while Grizzle was to hang in the grass market. It said that those who watched the burning that Thomas took longer than it would take any normal person to burn, his staff writhing and twisting in the flames by his side. Grizzle, on the other hand, stood on the gallows and attempted to remove all of her clothes before meeting her end, to the shock of the gathered onlookers. Following the execution of Thomas and Grizzle Weir, the flat they occupied in the West Bowl was abandoned and left to decay. The public feared the evil spirits that might linger within, and while no person had dared to live there, mysterious happenings continued to be reported, even years after its occupant's death. In 1780, it was bought by an ex-soldier and his wife. The pair intended to settle, despite the horrid rumours about the most haunted house in Edinburgh, only to flee on their first night when the apparition of a calf appeared at their bedside. Since, other reports include that the windows light up at night, strange music and laughter wafting into the street. Sometimes the shapes of enormous women can be made out through the windows, and other times the mysterious black staff can be said hovering its way down the street in search of its master. Sometimes the sound of a coach and six horses can be heard thundering down the West Bow, bearing the spirits of Thomas and Grizzle off back to Old Nick. The end. Mm-hmm. I want to know what's so scary about the apparition of a calf. Like, if a baby <laughs> calf appeared next to me in the bedroom, I'd be like, that's a bit weird, but it wouldn't terrify me. Like, baby I'm sure cows it was are quite cute. by spooky lighting. Yeah, but they're quite cute, baby calves. Like, was it a slaughtered calf? Had they killed Ooh. it in a sacrifice? Maybe that would be a bit more scary. Like a calf head, like. Yeah godfather level of <laughs> yeah i suppose anything appearing where it shouldn't be would inherently be quite creepy though yeah, it is a strange yeah. one that it's not a particularly creepy creature like if someone had to be oh like a spider appeared i'd be like oh but ah <laughs> come on i'd go yeah. pet it <laughs> even, even a full-sized cow would be a bit scarier <laughs> like <laughs> maybe they woke up and it was like right next to their face like you know, as close to, like, just a nose length away. That would freak you out if you woke up and there was, like, a, a cow Yeah, but right I don't there. think it would make me move. I'd just be like, cool, we've got a ghost cow pet. It's fine. <laughs> also, what's the connection to the witch? Because I, I don't normally think of a cow as a witch's creature. Yeah, my only thought was that, um... Oh, wait, he'd been up to it with the animals, hadn't he? Maybe it was one of his kids. <laughs> Oh, oh, David. What? Daddy. My only thought was that like cloven hooved creature, a bit like the devil who has cloven hooves. I don't I think know. A goat I would, would be, a, be bit. a goat. Yeah, yeah, like a goat. A goat would be the more obvious choice, but um, 
I suppose these witches' tales don't always make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> I also like the idea of it could have mentioned earlier in the story about the staff which the congress occasionally had seen just wandering out to get <laughs> stuff for the guy and they never thought they're suspicious like do you think the shopkeeper was like there's your shopping for today mr stick and he just dances his way back again like <laughs> honestly the stick is like my favorite part of that story also a little mystery at the beginning it talks about how if he didn't have the stick his sermons weren't that great mm. that's never never looked at again yeah. What kind of powers did the stick have? Like, it clearly wasn't him that was the powerful one. It was the stick. It's also interesting it is... that the sister was called Grizzle. That's such a witch name. Well, we have another Grizzle coming up later in the episode. Oh. I was just thinking that. Can see why That's no one names name. their kids that these days. I wonder what that name actually means. Because her actual name was Jean. Jean. So how do you get Grizzle? Are you googling it now? I am. Can you hear my keyboard tapping yep. away? <laughs> <laughs> so witches' cats were always known as a grey malkin, right? And ah, oh. isn't that like what? Th- doesn't that mean something as well? Well, something like grey cat or black. Cat. Yeah. So I've just googled Grizzle Scottish name, and the meaning of the name Grizzle in Scotland is grey-haired. So, so maybe it just means old woman, pretty much. Yeah. Just like a, uh, like a, a nickname for the old woman who lives down the road. Yeah. Grizzle down the road. Old Grizzle. What was quite interesting, though, is that neither of them ever, well, according to the story, ever tried to deny any of it. And normally, well, quite often they'll say that of like the women's tales and things, but when I've read a couple that mm-hmm. it's like male witches that have been done the witch trials, and after like an initial kind of inclination towards something and they like fervently de- deny it until the end and stand and get burned because mm. they they refuse to admit it. Whereas in this case, they've just been like, "Yep, yeah, they both said they were witches. Didn't care. Off they go." Yeah, it's good. I also I did also like um the staff. The staff is just a great character. Yeah. I wonder what a ghost stick mm. does. What do you do? Not Aaron. I feel like sticks probably don't do a lot in the first place, but a ghost stick I feel would. <laughs> Do you think he still goes to the corner shop? And, yeah. the, and the guy in the corner shop is like, for God's Jenkins sake. Jenkins tried to give him, the first time he came back to the corner shop, the guy tried to give him like a pint of milk again and it just fell through <laughs> the stick. <laughs> the stick's like, oh no! <laughs> but it's not really a traditional sign of witches either. Um, like, they often talked about having some kind of item mm-hmm. uh, in, in the witch, you know, tales that I know of. They often talk about having some kind of item. But mm-hmm. it's normally you know, like, creepy straw dolls or boxes of teeth. You know, weird yeah. things. Like a staff like that is much more closer to our conception of witches and wizards looking yeah. at you, Gandalf, than it is yeah. um, in the past, I think. Yeah, I was thinking that as well, because it's like, it's got the carvings of, like, the satyrs on it, and it had a head on top. Like, that's just something from World of Warcraft, basically. Yeah. <laughs> The witches that I know of, you know, they all have the kind of the devil's mark, mm-hmm. some kind of beauty spot. They're normally either old or ugly. Um, a lot, of, a lot of them had difficulties communicating. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, sign of witchcraft would be strange noises at night, uh, if they have an animal familiar, things like that. Yeah. So it's just interesting to see the different conceptions and like where they could have come come from. Yeah, and what the different kind of how it relates to people's paranoia 
like, is this just a, a stick the guy at the clergy used to walk with? And then, as the tale's been told and retold, it becomes some kind of yeah. evil staff. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Someone was telling the story. They were like, oh, did you hear what happened down at the West Bowl? I'll tell you that he's drunk. And he's talking about, yeah. oh, he had this stick. And I did wee errands for him. Went and picked <laughs> up his milk in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Alcohol does seem to be a big part of almost all Scottish folklore. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or at least when we're involved, it does. <laughs> Very true. We're keeping up tradition. <laughs> Okay, so the witch I will be talking about today is called Maggie of the Moss. Maggie of the Moss is an epic poem written around the late 1830s by Robert Kerr. So surprisingly, there is very little information about the poet himself. But what I could find out is that he grew up near the Hawk of Ur in Galloway. During a time where witches, fairies and ghosts weren't superstitions, but were very real physical presences in the world. However, at the same time, time we have a society that's becoming increasingly interested in scientific inquiry and disproving these superstitions calling them rural and silly so we have a man who's seen both of these two worlds and i think you can really see that in the poem we begin with an idyllic cottage where a couple lived with their children the wife is described as an incredible woman unsurpassed in spinning weaving washing and even managing to remember three quarters of the bible Her husband, Herd Simon, loved his wife and children, and was very scared of ghosts and witches. Meanwhile, we cut east to a good bow shot off where a witch called Maggie lived. She is described with ghastly looks and visage queer, where proofs to all the neighbours near, her crooked back and wrinkled brow, to fiery e'en seemed in low, which had perhaps, be it to their praise, bewitched some youth in former days, her curious mutting to herself, and where she came from none could tell. Her odd-like manner and her clothes made a la mode of former days, a vulgar tongue and rather free, made Meg what she was said to be. Surprisingly, Kerr then goes on to mourn the title attributed to Maggie. He suggests if Maggie had been dressed more expensively and been rich, she never would have been called a witch. Instead, she falls into witchcraft because Nick, or the devil, lay in wait, taking advantage of her ostracization from society. So this is the first place where we kind of see the tension between rural belief and superstition, because he's almost suggesting that she would not have been a witch ever if it weren't for the town deciding that she was because she looked different and she spoke to herself and she was poor. Well, anyway, Maggie becomes a witch feared by both the poor and wealthy. And although they cursed her and spoke badly about her, she received whatever she asked for. For every farmer strove to please the hag with milk and meal and cheese, and none considered it a loss to serve old Maggie of the Moss. So really, she's my heroine. We then hear about Maggie's other dastardly witchy actions, such as overturning the carts of those who do not give her what she asks for, driving her horses mad until they break their bones, causing cows to suddenly die, or even killing every animal on a farm. During stormy nights, she flies through the air, leading the storms behind her, to dash towards the oceans and sink ships, because the more she drowned, the more enjoyment. 
And finally, the neighbor spoke of her ability to transform herself into a hare, which could outrun any hound and was virtually unkillable. The villagers also knew she was dealing with the devil, as they often heard the two sleeping together, finding his footprints the following day and hearing loud noises from her cottage. Now we hear of her dealings with the honest Simon and his wife. They had been tormented by Maggie for a long time. So one night Maggie had turned into an eagle and brought storm winds through their house, blowing everything away. And finally, she had cursed Simon's favorite hen, which caused Simon to one day vow to kill the witch and rid himself, rid himself of Maggie and the devils. So of course, this might be the most foolish thing that Simon could have done because we've seen Maggie as the all powerful witch. And now he's just gone and said, ah, but you know, give me 10 minutes with her and I'll show her what's what. So one dark wintry night, Simon was heading home, hoping to avoid witches, when who should pop up in his path? In his path? Yeah, it was Maggie the Moss. So his wig flows right off in his fear, which is a very humorous image to me, because he's also planted still on the spot. So it's literally, he sees her, hair gone. Uh, Maggie casts a spell on Simon, which causes him to fly in the air, which is, I think, the funniest part of the poem. So he's there trying to cling to the grass on the hill but his body no earth the earth's uh, surface burned he seemed like gravitation turned his heels went bickering in the air he held till he could hold no more till first we signed the tether he lost his hold altogether i mounted up in gallant style right perpendicular for a mile so, <laughs> a mile in the air perfectly perpendicular until he finally evens out jumps onto his back and rides him like a broomstick <laughs> this is just hilarious to me because she's now decided to ride him like uh, ride a screaming man like a broomstick to which is gathering um, and how else is she supposed to get there of course um, and if you can't imagine it Care describes it quite wonderfully with Maggie mounted on his back as sicker as a peddler's pack with rope about his head and neck, her human pony to direct, and in the other withered hand, a hazel cudgel did command, with which she played upon him sweetly, and leathered Simon's sides completely. <laughs> so, it's a very it's a very humorous poem, as we can see, despite the quite graphic and terrible content. So finally, the two reach the North Pole, where crowds have gathered to meet with the devil. And here we see Care's exposure to this other side of society that's more interested in exploring because it's not just scottish witches that are there we have eskimo mounted on bears indian witches on bamboo brooms australian witches or south sea witches on kangaroos as well as witches and warlocks from both north and south pole so here we see that witchcraft is absolutely everywhere and we also see that kind of racism that comes with empire and that these other peoples are seen to be witches because their cultures are different from our own. Maggie wasn't the only Scottish witch e there either. There were many a Caledonian granny on um, cabbage stalks, cats, hens, and there were also other men being ridden like ponies. <laughs> so Old Nick leads his demon army out of hell um, to go and meet his favorite witches and they all race to get to him first. Four witches distinguish themselves from the masses. There's Bessaborg, Glencairn Kate, a Southern Sea Hag, and of course our heroine Maggie. They race for the devil's favor, and it's a close run thing until Maggie finally wins. They celebrate with a good old Scottish reel. Um, no, Maggie starts, and what a treat, as round she flies with Satan's self, 
till many a Carlin envied Meg and wished to see her break her leg. Simon watches on in horror as the witches tell of their dark deeds to their dark master, including poisoning wives, breaking bones, killing husbands, and leaving children as orphans. But happily, he survives the ordeal, and he goes on to tell of what he saw many a time. So the poet finishes his work with a warning to the skeptics. That Maggie does not rank alone, nor yet is Nick the only one, who oft as guiltless caught he blame by having first a wicked name. So again, showing the minute you become a witch is when the world decides that you are worthy of the name witch. And she does not rank alone. Maggie is not the only witch in Scotland or in the world. There's plenty. And for me, I think the message is the, you know, evils that humans can commit just ourselves. Um, and also men should be written like ponies. I was just going to say, if you haven't read this poem yet, please do, because it's it's so funny. There's just all these little add-ins that show <laughs> this kind of, like, satirical nature. But, you know, at the same time, he's not. He is slightly making fun of the belief in witches, but he's not at the same time. He's more making fun, I think, of the stories that come with it. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, there are so many superstitious people, and he himself, the poet, would have been very superstitious for a time as well. Mm-hmm. So... I think part of him does believe that these things exist in the world. Um, so, you know, Maggie becomes a witch because she'd already been called one. Mm-hmm. So that suggests to me that there are people who become witches, you know, because they decide to. Um, like, Nick, the devil, is present in the poem and he's real, and that, like, Robert Cares convinced he's real. Mm-hmm. And I like that the witch. Um... I mean, there wasn't really a victory, but she isn't defeated in the end or anything. It's more of a poem cautioning respect for these people. Yeah, and you're really on her side by the end of the yeah. honestly. Like, she's not a nice woman, for sure, with all the things she's bragging about having done. Mm-hmm. Like, it's really terrible deeds. But, you know, at the same time, it's just, it's just very funny to imagine. And, you know, um... A scene that I, I omit it, but there's a scene where she's, you know, flying back down to um, Galloway and she's won two casks of best Jamaican rum for winning the race, very casually smoking her pipe, looking at the beautiful green rolling hills and rising sun, while, you know, this poor man is still, you know, being ridden. I don't know why, right? But all I could think about, it was when you got to the scene in the North Pole when they start dancing, but it, yeah. it just made me think of the snowman. Um, <laughs> because they fly, they fly off to the North Pole. They do a jig do. with the other snowmen. And they maybe that's where the inspiration for it came. Yeah, maybe. Do we know if the man complained about his experience at all, or whether he was perfectly okay with this? Does it comment much on that? Well, it does. It says so. He survived this ordeal, and he went on to tell the story many times. Um, and I think probably as a warning of like, look what Maggie did to me. And there's so many more witches out there. Look at that kind of supernatural power. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's quite a, a quick end. Like it then immediately goes on to warn the skeptics. So I feel like the ending is, I, the ending kind of probably represents the that more people are not believing in these superstitions anymore or mm. are being dismissive of them. I like how well. Not I don't know if likes the right word, but I find it intriguing how such a gruesome story can be told as a humorous poem and like it's really shocking actually so like 
after they're dancing with the devil, and then he asks about like how his earthly people have been doing, and they give like a really horrific list of crimes, like like really awful stuff that they're doing to like women and children as well. It really kind of slaps you out of nowhere because the poem has been so amusing up until that point. Yeah, and I guess like for me, I think that just shows the fear like because simon's watching all this and hearing about all this it's almost saying like yeah no his fear about the evils in the world are justified because these things do happen even if it's not witches who commit them i think it also shows the the victorian sense of humor (laughs) (laughs) yeah they do like a bit uh they're all goths aren't they yeah (laughs) (laughs) moral of the story is that people do awful things but if they ride people like horses it's fine and we can laugh about it I've got. I've prepared a law lecture. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was joking. Oh, yeah. Settle down, class. No. It's time for. A... <laughs> so, in starting to research for this episode, I originally wanted to find a suitably haunting story with plenty of drama. However, in typical me form, I became fixated on a specific detail in the Royal Witch Trial of 1590, held in North Berwick, and fell down a rabbit hole in researching it. And as such, I have decided to talk about that instead, because I found that interesting. Um, Nobody else may, but I found it interesting. But I'm going to set a bit of a context first of what the North Berwick Witch Trial actually was. So that was known as the Royal Witch Trial, and it took place uh, between 1590 and 1591. And it all started when the Deputy Bailey of Trennan accused his maid of being a witch. Uh, and then used thumb screws, as one would, to extract a confession from her, as well as a list of accomplices. Uh, the list being Dr. John Fine, maybe how you pronounce it, uh, Euphemia McLean, Barbara Napier, and Agnes Sampson. A group from a wide range of backgrounds, including a teacher, a member of the nobility, and a midwife. Um, from there, they extracted from the ringleader, John Fine, the name Francis Hepburn, who was the Earl of Bothwell at the time, and uh, in line for the throne. And after interrogating Agnes Simpson, the Earl was named as being involved with the group in a plot to kill the king. Now, there are various tellings of exactly what else was extracted from the accused witches, with Adam Lyle's witchery tales stating that the confession from the other women had been so far-fetched that the king had accused them of all being a group of liars until one whispered to him something from his wedding night that no mortal should know and that, that apparently convinced him they were actually witches but um and in this witch trial all bar barbara napier and francis hepburn the earl were executed so barbara managed i think she was arrested and then later um freed from jail and francis hepburn uh, escaped to Italy, I think. So that was an interesting one, set in the context we bit there for what I'm going to talk about next, which is um, the detail which led me off and about the tangent was to do with the torture that had been carried out. So, being a former student of law and now in practice, I was a bit shocked about the use of torture and wanted to know how this formed part of proceedings, as I couldn't see how its widespread use would fit uh, within even the judicial system of the time period, which, despite many's assumption, was fairly intricate and regulated arm of government. 
And upon beginning my research, I found that there was a generally held assumption prevalent until the early thousands, um, and still seen in popular media today, that one of the reasons behind the ferocity of Scottish witch trials over others in Europe was because, in contrast to countries like England, where torture was not permitted, it was commonplace in Scottish procedure. Even articles published last year in the tabloids reports uh, of where there's been thousands of people tortured during the witch trials. Now this struck me as a very stark difference between the legal systems, that while distinctly different tend to share a lot of commonly held principles even if they're carried out in different ways. So uh, I dug a bit deeper to find out why or what this distinction in English and Scottish law was, why according to the news of the time and the reports England was this lovely civil place where you couldn't have none of that type of torture and all the witches were treated nicely until they were burned on the stake and at Scotland they were all interrogated and tortured and put on the rack. Um, but it appeared after a bit of research that within the Scottish laws at the time if you wanted to employ torture as part of the, judici the judicial procedure uh, you were required to seek a specific warrant from Parliament or the Privy Council and these were rarely granted. Uh, between 1591 and 1708, the main period for the witch trials, only 39 warrants were issued and covering fewer than 50 individuals. So technically within Scottish law there should only have been 50 people tortured as part of uh, witch trials within the court system in order to extract confessions, one of them being the uh, the royal witch trials which we discussed before. Um, they were permitted to use torture in those cases. Um, as such, the typical thumbscrew and rack image of Scottish witch trials may not have been the norm, and that their use in trials such as the, the Royal Witch Trials I mentioned, combined with the English-based media at the time, um, has led to a far more torture-fueled image of the Scottish legal, legal system at the time. Um, and it's not the case to say, however, that the trials were not generally barbaric, because they were across Europe. Um, while not a single case of judicial torture was used in the 435 witch trials, there was commonly used uh, uh, something called waking, which would be uh, sleep deprivation. Uh, there was witch pricking, which was uh, using a small implement to prick the uh, the witch spots, the mark, the beauty marks on uh, reported witches to see if it would bleed. Um, there was uh, terrible conditions within the prison cells, left in really small confined spaces, unable to go to sleep, didn't have beds, all this kind of stuff, or proper drainage. These, while not cons while not considered torture by the standards of those days, would be considered torture under modern international conventions. Um, but as I say, was not specific to Scotland. This was quite a common um, method used to extract confessions in England as well and across all the rest of Europe. Um, now, while this explanation stated my need to establish what the, the technical procedure was and that they should have sought consents, and that not nearly as many judicial tortures were carried out as reported. There was something that piqued my interest in a paper I read. It reported the percentage of conviction rates in the three forms of courts permitted to conduct witch trials in Scotland. Um, the local courts executed some 90% of those accused. The judiciary court executed 55% and the circuit court only 16%. Having seen the dramatic difference of the local court, and with it being further removed from things like the Privy Council, the general centralised legislature, um, and act, it seems that it may be 
more likely that it might act outside of the, the criminal procedure of the time. And after a bit more reading about extrajudicial extra torture, it appears that they may have been doing some of their own torture on the side, um, with many reports of lynching and the trial of witches normally stemming from fear in local communities, it's unsurprising that local courts may have acted more within the local opinion than strictly in line with the procedure. And as such, while there's not reported to being granted many warrants to engage in torture as part of the judicial procedure within the big courts, it seems likely that the local courts will have become a bit of a law unto themselves because you've got to think, the local courts at the time, it's not like at the moment where a lot of judges will travel in from different major ones in the central belt or anything. If you were a local judge, local jury um, in a local courtroom, it would have been your neighbours, people down the road, people that you go to school, went to school with. They would all be the ones who had banded together and were scared of this witch and had accused them of being a witch you are a lot more likely to engage in practices that were strict less in line with the overall law of the country and more in line with local customs. Um, so in general in my research it helped me more easily align what we did with the rest of Europe um, in terms of examining the accused in these cases. Um, to find that, that while everything was very barbaric, it was quite uniformly barbaric across Europe. So there was nothing good in this really for the witches. While they were not quite as often subjected to thumbscrews as one might have originally thought, they were still horrifically treated and at the end of the day a lot of them killed. And as in the local courts as many as 90% were killed. So they really had no real chance if they were in the local courts. They would be hoping to be sent to a higher court or the circuit courts. Um, so that was a wee examination of the Scottish law at the time and the use of torture of them things. Oh, last fun fact in respect of it. There were a few selected thing, torture methods which were valid ones by the Scottish legal system to be used when the warrant was granted. So you couldn't just do anything you wanted. You had to fit within these specific ones. The two most common being the thumb screws and something called the boot. And the boot, it was less commonly used, but it was used more for kind of highway criminals, bandits. Um, and what it was, they would encase your foot and bottom part of your leg in what was ultimately like a metal boot. And they would drive these wooden wedges into the gaps in it, which would then shatter your bones and shear your flesh until they got a confession of what you wanted. So there was, oh, Roy McGregor, I think. Somebody, Roy McGregor. Um, was one of the people that was it was famously used on because while they didn't actually need anything from him they wanted to find out who was working with him because he knew he, he had must have had a patron to run as big a bandit organization as he did um, so there we go a little bit about the legal system at the time and how that played in and that one the royal trial was one where actually they did use torture but validly used torture within the laws of the time that is brutal oh my goodness yeah. No, the, the accused witches did not have a good time, and even if there was a lot less of the, the formal torture, there was a lot of everything else. Yeah, mm. definitely. And almost everything they went through would, by modern standards, be considered to be infringing the UN conventions on torture. So mm -hmm. almost all of the witches that were there would have been subjected to what is torture today. See, the sleep deprivation one for me, I don't know why, but that one seems worse. I think my record with my very poor organizational skills and mismanagement of deadlines is I've once been awake for 52 hours. 
And by the end of it, I was seeing, like, I was fully hallucinating. Uh, my flatmate told me I apparently went in to tell her uh, about the, um, my guinea pig had gotten lost in my room. I do not own a guinea pig. <laughs> but I was watching it run about my room for a very long time. So just, like, keeping these people awake, by the end of it, they'd be half convinced that they're witches. Belief in your own guilt is almost just as damning as the torture itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like the odds are just completely stacked against you. I'm also slightly suspicious about the, the death sentence at the time because it was the most common one used for witching things. But I think it was less... Um, well, part of it would have been out of fear that they would somehow free themselves or escape. But I think part of it from reading cases where they've tried to imprison them instead, it was largely because the prisons would have had to be financed by the district areas where they were imprisoned mm -hmm. and nobody wanted to pay for it. So there was one that was the church was doing the prosecution on... Um, and they wanted this person to be imprisoned um, and held and securely and everything. And the local authorities said, no, we're not paying for that. They can have what's called the thieves hole. So just a hole in the ground with a grate over it. They said, no, we don't want anyone to be able to have access to this person. So went back and forth. In that case, they actually just freed her in the end because nobody wanted to bother imprison her. Uh -huh. But on a lot of cases, they just decided, well, we'll just kill them. It's easier. We don't have to deal with the upkeep. <sighs> Yeah, and then there's also when you add in the religious element of, um, you know, being possessed by the devil or evil spirits or what mm. have you. Um, I suppose they didn't think they had a choice but to burn these people. But mm. it's... Yeah, Although it's... until doing the research on this one, I thought they'd just been like burned alive as was in the stake. But it seems like in most cases they were strangled and then burned. Mm -hmm. So not great, but slightly better. Slightly more merciful. Yeah. Although we've been handy. I was actually listening to another podcast recently and it was talking about how difficult it is to look at things like this in the past with our modern understanding of norms and probably a more modern move away from religion and from the church. But like for these people, like God was real and he he you know, he was showing his hand and directing events and if they didn't win a battle or whatever it was because um they had done something wrong not that god had abandoned them so the only way they could find like if things are going wrong in the country it's because we have done something wrong have we done something wrong we have allowed these witches to live and like by killing them it, they were in their heads purifying their own country mm -hmm. and like there was just this strong belief that the devil was attempting to bring down like it wasn't just a town that was being attacked; it was it was the country and the king himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. It's just a completely different perspective that we are never gonna completely mm. understand. There seemed to be some strategicness as well about improving the country and the way that they did some of the interrogations. So, um, ones where higher up officials, even up to the king, were involved, there would be confessions that would implicate kind of high up individuals who are maybe a threat to the crown mm -hmm. so that they would then be yeah. involved in the witchcraft Yeah. so it seems to be used as well as a tool by the country to try and maybe not pacify God necessarily but to occasionally sate the king who at that point was appointed by God Yeah. so convenient witch witches hmm in convenient places. 
I guess as well, you also had, like, everyone knew what was going to happen to a witch. If a witch was found, like, the torturing wasn't exactly kept secret, and neither was the execution. Mm-hmm. It was all that kind of theater of, if this is, if you bow to the devil, this is what's going to happen to you. Yeah. So, like, you have that just constant fear of, am I going to be mm-hmm. named, or am I going to be accused next? And how can you trust anyone in your town? Exactly. And people are so scared to kind of direct blame from themselves that they would hand in, you know, their neighbours, people that they knew. Mm-hmm. If, if I hand in a witch, then I can't be a witch. I'm one of the good guys, sort of thing. Yeah, like it was like in, um, remember when we did that episode on the ghost stories and I talked about Pollock House? Mm-hmm. And how it went from literally a single uh, person had come in and accused this family of witchcraft. <laughs> which she had done before, so it's obviously just a little show of power. But, you know, like, they'd name again and again and say, actually, no, I'm innocent. I was seduced by this person, and Mm -hmm. that person was seduced by the devil. So it's, like, almost trying to create a buffer, like you said, like a buffer between them of, like, I'm not truly guilty. It's this person's terrible influence influence over me. If she's removed, I'll go back to being, you know, a good person. Yeah. I was thinking that's all, like, how easy is it to actually just say, well, this person is a witch? Just get rid of her. Anyone that causes any kind of commotion religiously or politically, you could just say, well, actually, she's a witch. And then they just get taken out. Even then, they don't have to be, like, connected to it. You know, they just have to, like, look a bit different or not properly join in on the community. I saw her speaking to her cat. Oh, there was one like, as well. Yeah. There was one as well that was like there was an old woman who lived in the old town Edinburgh, and she kind of just wandered about and muttered to herself occasionally and stuff. And they're like, "Ah, she's speaking to the devil," and that was all they needed for mm-hmm. that one. So mm. yeah, yeah, a lot of... it's very tragic. And they also had the witch hunters who went out and found the witches. Although I think it was flawed in that they paid them per person per witch they found. I think that probably encouraged <laughs> them to find quite a lot of witches. Yeah, like one of the Scottish witch hunters that was quite famous was sent down to was it like oh. Newcastle or something like that, somewhere like that, to go and find witches. And he was offered 20 shillings a witch on that one. And straight away found 15 witches. I was on the roll at that one. You would, wouldn't you? <laughs> Must have been amazing at his job. No other, no other factors there. <laughs> Living in Dundee, I was curious what witch stories our own city had to tell, and researching this story has actually helped me solve a curiosity of mine from when I was still in high school. I used to commute to school and I'd get the bus that stopped in city centre, and from there I'd walk through sort of a narrow cobbled street that was sandwiched between a costume shop and a kind of trinket and gift shop. Um, And I always followed this path down uh, between the buildings that I always found a bit creepy. And there were two mosaics on both sides of the entrances. And I always kind of wondered what they were. So one was a cross and the other was just kind of like a cup. Um, So this story actually solves that mystery for me. So um, I'm really glad to be able to tell this story today. The street that I'm referring to is called Peter Street. And the two cups that I remember seeing are actually of a flaming torch. Uh, So it's a cup with kind of flames orange flames coming out of it and the second one is a similar shaped cup but with a blue liquid likely water um so there's two mosaics there and they're actually a memorial to Grisel Jaffrey 
who was the last woman in Dundee to be burned at the stake after being accused of being a witch. She was born in Aberdeen sometime between 1590 and 1600s. She was thought to be of the High Society Jaffreys of Aberdeen, as her father would have been Alexander Jaffrey, who was the Lord Provost of Aberdeen in 1651. Chriselle moved to Dundee and married James Butchart in 1615. He was a wealthy businessman and also an influential figure in Dundee, so the pair were likely well off alongside being well known and also being quite good citizens. However, in 1669, they were accused of practising witchcraft, as Griselle was, was said to be able to predict the future. By association, her husband was also convicted, however, the charges were later dropped. Griselle was not so fortunate, and she was actually hung to death before being burned at the stake. This was the common method in Scotland of killing witches at the time. She was burned where we now see the cross at the bottom of Peter Street which back in the day would have faced the town hall, so this would have been a very public execution. The mosaic at Peter Street that I mentioned earlier was created in her memory, um, showing the flames possibly depicting the lit torch that burned her, and the second cone facing away from the first one is filled with water to extinguish the fire. Along the alley there is also a blue plaque with Griselle Jaffrey's name, but no mention of her alleged crimes or the sinister act that took place at that location. There also aren't very many records of the conviction at all um, and actually most of the information was potentially destroyed in a, in a fire in the town hall. However, um, as with many things at the time, um, accountants would keep notes. Um, anything relating to money would have kept been kept more secret and more preserved. So we do have some accountants notes of that time and these notes show some billable items uh, for the execution, such as oak beams, chain, rope and tar, which is very chilling um, that this act was completely legal and it had invoices and labour costs and other things, just like another day in the office. And we see that the paperwork was dated November 11th, 1669, which also coincides with the Celtic festival of Savin, which is celebrated at harvest as one of the four seasonal celebrations of fire. The Privy Court records also show that Griselle was a prisoner at the toll booth, which is um, like a justice court, um, which would have been located where we now have the Overgate Shopping Centre, which if you've not been to Dundee, it's kind of our biggest shopping centre on the high street. Um, so it's all very centred um, in Dundee city centre <laughs> very much. Um, it is also worth noting that she was trialled initially and found guilty by public court. Um, but women could be accused of witchcraft for all sorts of things, including gossiping or jealous behaviour and impulses, or even things like mixing herbs or be seen to be chanting. And um, these would be things that uh, many people would assume, or also would associate with witchcraft, um, and could have been some of the things that she may have been convicted of but again it's unclear as to the exact evidence that was provided against her uh, but it just shows how easy it is to pass anything like that through the courts and especially considering her age as she did live a remarkably long life we know that Griselle's husband James would have been 73 at the time so we can assume that Griselle herself was probably around the same age and that's quite a long age to live to, 73, um, or 70s certainly, in the 1600s. 
Um, the Privy Court Council also shows in its minutes that she accused three other people of witchcraft, though it is also unclear if they were sanctioned or if they managed to escape like her husband. For the three others, they were simply banned from the city, so did not face further trials in Dundee. Another heartbreaking detail of the story is that Griselle and James had a son, and he was a boat captain, and on the day of the execution, he was actually travelling back to Dundee. And this, I suppose, kind of coincides with the Harvest Festival. Such occasions would have been quite a family affair. People would spend time together. Um, so it's reasonable that he would have been travelling back on that day. Um, however, when he docked at the harbour in Dundee, he saw the billowing smoke. When he asked what had happened, he discovered it was the site, it was coming from the site where his mother had just been executed. With his shock when he learned that, he fled from Dundee and he never returned. It's unclear whether at this point he knew that his father had survived or if he thought that both of his parents had now died. Um, but some records show that he himself had a son and together they sailed off to India where they made quite a bit of money doing business. Uh, and then years later did eventually return to Scotland, never back to Dundee, but did return to Scotland. Um, and then they purchased an estate in Errol. Digging into the story further, there are some indications that Griselle's execution may have been motivated by politics and religion. Her family, the Jaffreys, were Quakers, which is a religious affiliation based on Christianity, but it follows slightly different traditions. And they believe that God is in everyone, so there's no need to follow particular rituals to reach God. And Charles II, who was the English king at the time, um, had quite heavily prosecuted Quakers for many years due to these religious beliefs. Um, and they were not allowed to practice their beliefs freely. The timing also coincides with the aftermath of the Siege of Dundee in 1651. The movement was led by an Oliver Cromwell um, and his armies who forced sanctions on people who did not follow the word of the king, suggesting that perhaps what happened to Griselle may have been more of a religious assassination rather than a ploy against witches directly. After all, following the siege of Dundee, Aberdeen also surrendered and her father would have been the Lord Provost at the time. Griselle's accusers were also three local ministers who would have been quite high-powered people in society. Um, they were Henry Scrimger of St Mary's, John Guthrie of the South Church and William Raitt of the Third Charge, which we now know as St Paul's. All three of them would likely have opposed Griselle's religious beliefs and wish her harm on those grounds. Griselle's story now lives in folklore and through the tales told in books and films uh, and our podcast, of course. Um, but notable works of fiction that depict her story are there's a book called The Cure Wife by Claire Marie Watson and the title refers to the crime that Griselle was convicted of, which is fortune telling. The story also tied itself to that of the Witch's Stone in the Old Hof Cemetery in the city centre of Dundee, and this is suggested to be Griselle's final resting place. The stone itself is a sort of pillar, um, probably about waist height to most people, and a lot of people um, would come past it to leave coins and other tokens to appease the spirits of the witches. It does, however, seem quite unusual that a witch would be buried at holy ground, um, and providing, I suppose that kind of provides two further twists to the tale that either 
Grisel was not a witch and she was targeted on religious or political grounds. Or, unfortunately, fiction has mixed with the real story here and we can't be sure exactly where her ashes are buried. Um, but it's another kind of tale, a, a twist to this tale that adds even more depth to the story and more mystery because we can't know for sure. I didn't know, actually know much about I Like, I'd heard the name Grizzle Jeffries before, but, like, mm-hmm. never known what her background was or why she was accused of witchcraft. Or, uh, in the classical image of your whether the witch will float or drown, did that in Edinburgh because there was, like, the theory that witches were lighter. Mm-hmm. And this one actually did float. Um, so she was uh, burnt. But the reward for sinking was that they were able to be buried on consecrated ground. Yeah, it really was a lose-lose situation. Yeah, properly. <laughs> I heard as well the um, dunkings were supposed to be reminiscent of, you know, baptism, which oh. is why the witch would float because they would reject the water, like oh it would my be, God. Whole, yeah. like it, like it's, it's, um, like you were saying, like the Quakers rejected these rituals, but in fact, testing this witch, testing witches, is often like inverting these religious rituals which Mm. i find quite interesting yeah such a horrible way to die and i suppose like obviously being set on fire as well as but i didn't know that they would have already kind of done the assassination part of it it was really Mm -hmm. more ritualistic than anything to burn the body at the end and such a public spectacle as well i suppose it probably would have taken quite a lot of wood to burn a person in general, because mm. like it, you need quite a lot of temperature and heat to burn a person. Yeah. And apparently they used oak beams. Wow. Wow. Such a production. Yeah. 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 And the fact that like you've got invoices for these things, invoices are such like just normal things that when I think mm. of witch trials, I don't think, oh, get the invoice for that. Oh. Yeah, you know, I've always, I always imagined it as like the angry mob, mm-hmm. and they found the wood and they brought the witch to the pyre and burned her but it was genuinely like a government project but let's let's finish on a happy note yes of of simon the herder flying perpendicular for a mile (laughs) after gripping to the grass because he was so afraid with his heels kicking in the air So, yeah, despite all the tragedy and the awful things that people managed to do to each other, you also get people who recognize that and create stories with the sole purpose of mocking that belief and making people laugh. Yes. There's always light in the world. Always light in the world. (laughs) And And when I become a witch, I will be responsible (laughs) for it. I also, like, going back to that story... I don't know why, but the line about like turning over carts when she didn't get what she wanted really amused me. It just yes. made me think of her having like a complete temper tantrum and like just flipping it. Flipping yeah. It. <laughs> yeah, presumably there was some magic coward. involved in the turning over the carts, and she didn't just like go Hulk mode on it. <laughs> no, she went Hulk mode. And this old woman. <laughs> <laughs> And that's a podcast. Thank you for listening to the Folklore Scotland podcast. 
We'll be back every single week with new folklore content from stories to analysis, so stay tuned. Folklore Scotland is a charity founded to protect and preserve Scottish folklore through taking a multimedia approach to compiling and sharing folktales, telling the tales of the past with the technology of today. If you'd like to find out more about our charity, visit FolkloreScotland.com and if you're keen to become a voluntary contributor or would like to get in touch, send us an email at info at FolkloreScotland.com. You can also find all of our social media links and a link to a written version of this story in the show notes. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.